0: Have you ever felt the speed of trust? It's the shortest route to results and the one thing that affects everything else you're doing. It's a performance multiplier, which takes your trajectory upwards for every activity you engage in from strategy to execution. I felt the speed of trust from the moment I asked our next guest if he would come on the podcast, knowing full well that he hasn't spoken on a podcast or radio show since around 2014. But I know that when trust is high, communication is easy, instant, and effective. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast for episode number 207. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona and today's guest is someone I've mentioned often on this podcast. For returning guests, you'll be able to figure it out quickly. For those who are new, welcome. This episode is very special to me in many ways not just with the fact that I consider myself beyond lucky to have had this opportunity to have met some of the world's most influential people at a time in my life, in my late 20s, when this influence was important for the direction that I would take that would land me exactly where I am now, all these years later. While listening to today's episode, my hope is that this story inspires you in some way to take action with whatever it is you're working on as I take you on a trip that goes back over 20 years ago with the lessons learned along the way highlighted so you can see how some of the top influencers in the world have faced challenge, had doubts, fears, and worries, and even unthinkably difficult life challenges that they've all had to overcome, just like you and me. What was unique with this opportunity that I had while working in the speaking industry in the late 90s is that I was driven to keep in touch with many of the speakers who came in over the years, as you can see from this podcast. And this platform allows us all to continue to learn and grow from them with what author Jack Canfield would call inspired action that I'll cover in a minute. Today's guest I know we can all learn from, which is why I knew I had to ask him to share his experience on the podcast. If you think back to our final episode of the Think and Grow Rich book series, which was episode 196, that we launched 2022 with, we opened with a quote from Bob Proctor, who said, you can't just think and grow rich, you've got to do something with those thoughts. And it reminded me of meeting some of those global leaders around 20 years ago, including our guest today, Greg Link, and that knowledge is power. But without action, it's useless. And it's got to be inspired action as well that comes from the heart. The seminar where I met Greg Link was a pivotal one, and we'll talk about this in the interview when Steve Jobs says that you can't connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. It was here that I met Mark Victor Hansen, who co authored the Chicken Soup for the Soul series with Jack Canfield, presidential historian Doug Weed from episode 187 and many others, including celebrities like Melanie Griffith and world-class athletes who came in to speak. I met today's guest, Greg Link, in the lobby of the Ritz-Carlton in Pasadena, as he introduced me to his good friend Stedman Graham, the longtime partner of Oprah Winfrey, at the very beginning of this event. I remember at the time I had just started to write my first book that would be published quite a few years later. And when I met Stedman and saw that he had just written a book for teens, I remember that feeling of, oh no, I've missed the boat on this topic. But the message I would receive loud and clear this weekend from the speakers was quite the opposite. I could still hear Doug Weed shouting out at the audience in an attempt to motivate action from them when he said, get up and do something with this booming voice. And I wrote down, move forward with publishing this book idea. What shocks me to the core looking back and reading my notes from this event is that I had written Doug's age beside his name 21 years ago. Doug Weed was 54. I'm turning 51 this year. And if you heard episode number 187, you'll know that Doug passed away unexpectedly last year at the age of 75. I don't know how old you are, But I do know that whatever age you are, there's no such thing as missing the boat with whatever it is that you're meant to do. If that's not a huge motivator, I don't know what is. Remember, you can't connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. Everything I needed for success in my entire lifetime was right in front of me that weekend. They were all standing a shoulder's length away from me. If you were standing next to someone who could possibly change the course of your life, would you see it? After I recorded our top 10 episodes of all time, I got this strange feeling to ask Greg Link if he would come on as a guest. I mentioned taking inspired action at the beginning of this episode and recognized that this was one of those moments when I sent a message to Greg, but I hesitated. Why was I afraid to ask him to do this? He's always been there ready to help when I've asked him in the past. He did an incredible testimonial for our work in 2013 after those days of working in the seminar industry. And he even wrote a back of the book endorsement for The Secret for Teens. I hesitated because I knew he'd been off the grid for some time, but I asked him anyway. That's what Jack Canfield who partnered with Mark Victor Hansen for the Chicken Soup for the Soul series would call taking inspired action. I learned from Jack Canfield that those flashes of insight that we get to reach out to someone are so important to listen to. I'm excited to see what this inspired action will uncover. And I know that whatever it is that you take away from these secrets to success, from someone who's not only worked with, but partnered with the late Dr. Stephen Covey, my hopes are that it inspires you to move forward and take the inspired action you need to move forward in the direction of your goals. Let's meet Greg Link. Welcome, Greg Link, all the way from Sedona, Arizona. Look at that beautiful backdrop that's real, right? Look at that.
1: It's real, and it's raining, unfortunately. Well, actually, fortunately, because if it we're normally as sunny as it is, we probably couldn't do it.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. And I love the mountains. There's something magical about the mountains. And so I'm just thrilled that you chose to sit outside today. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm
1: actually standing because Bob Proctor, I watched you and Bob, <laughs> and Bob stood and I thought, hey, I that's know.
0: a great idea. I, like I, th- I thought so too. That was so professional. I was like dying.
1: and, and well, um, I'm, I'm I'm far from trying to be professional. <laughs>
0: Well, this is so good, Greg. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for doing good to this. See you, and so I've just gotta open up. I always like to open up with a question that kind of digs a little bit deeper so our audience can kind of get connected with you. And um, you came into my head a few times in the past episodes that I've been recording, and I like to tie uh, past episodes to current ones. And I quoted you a few times with some things you said along the way. And then I thought, you know, I've got to ask Greg Link to see if he would come on my podcast. And I know that we've been in touch over the years, but I wasn't sure if this is something that you would even consider doing. But, you know, I listen to those messages that we get and Jack Canfield calls it inspired action. And so I just sent you a message and I wasn't sure if you would say yes, but can you tell me what you've been doing since I saw you last? And what did you really think when I said, hey, Greg, do you want to come on this podcast?
1: Well, you know, Jack's our soul boy. You know, it's uh, uh, the whole chicken soup for from, from the soul phenomenon. Jack's an incredible person. And that inspired action concept in acting on your promptings, Is pretty extraordinary. You know, I I really feel that we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And there's a lot more to it. You know, you talk about connecting the dots. I tried to listen to a couple of your. I have listened to your podcast numerous times because I'm totally intrigued with neuroscience. I'm just not a scientist, right? So it's outside of my league i had a blast listening to the one just the other day with the guy from brazil uh i wrote down his name headland yeah 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 That was a good one talking about the cosmos well up here in sedona we're a dark sky community so when you go outside at night it's one of the few dark sky communities in the country and it is pitch black and the stars are awesome which is just like the mountains that whole tie into our existence is pretty heady stuff but i'm glad you followed your instincts that's uh, uh pretty uh, valuable for all of us to remember
0: Definitely. And you asked
1: me what i've been doing since uh we last saw each other well <laughs> it's been kind of an interesting uh, period of time for all of us certainly with the pandemic and and everything but i've been pondering i, I had a heart uh, scare a few years ago which caused me to, to retire semi-retire my cardiologist told me he says well you can fly once in a while with uh, for a vacation but you can't get on a plane every week and go speak uh-huh. so i kind of enjoyed this morning and thank you for having me do this because i got that little energy rush that you get when you've got a speech to give and I have given a speech for, I am rusty, so you may have to bail me out here and there, um, because I, I have not given a speech for probably four years. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned to me that you couldn't believe this is my first podcast. Well, I'm, I'm so old, I, you know, I'm not as old as Bob or Jack, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to Jack in Canfield. But um, back in the day, everything I did was radio. And it, then there was internet radio and there was television. i funny story about Stephen R. Covey, you know, when we first launched the Seven Habits book was way back in 1989. When we do television shows, they used to bring in a makeup artist to dust his head so wow. that the studio lights didn't reflect. Oh, he's so, Yeah, anyway, so podcasts are great. You know, doing this on an iPhone and a this is just, it doesn't get better than this. So thanks for having me, Andrea. Oh, one other comment about the uh, nature of your podcast, the neuroscience meets social and emotional learning or whatever. Um, as I thought about that since we talked last week and looked at, there's just so many connections that I'm hopefully going to gracefully make acknowledging the fact that I know nothing about neuroscience. Uh, I've read, uh, Deutsch's work, uh, The Brain That Changes Itself, and, and uh, many others. And my wife's very conversant in it. She uh, studied Daniel Siegelman's- Siegel. Yep. Siegel. Yeah, Siegel, yeah, Daniel Siegel. I get he and Martin Sullivan mixed yep. up. But anyway, yeah, she studied all his stuff. And it's fascinating, mind is really heady stuff. Okay, well anyway, so I was trying to anticipate and imagine what your audience is. I'm used to trying to to connect my messages to the audience. And I imagine you got people because of the nature of your, we've got educators, we've got corporate people, we've got scientists, we've got students, we've got all sorts. So I'm hoping that some of the leaps I make, and I'll guarantee I'll make a bunch of unsubstantiated leaps for you scientists. And it's going to be up to you to email Andrea and tell her where I'm right or wrong on the science part.
0: Well, it's funny, Greg, because when I came to see you, that was another inspired action. I don't often email people and say, hey, could I come to your house and see you? <laughs> like that, I don't know where that came from, but but I listened to well, that. You were and...
1: doing your book. You were working on your book, I think.
0: Exactly. And I was going in the direction of neuroscience. And like you, I did not have the background. I'm a former educator. And... Then this teacher said, "You've got to add neuroscience uh, in order for me to use your work in the schools." And so I I went. I'm like, "I got to go see Greg." And I sat there and I thought, "Is this the right direction?" I remember your wife was in the background and she had been studying it, and she said, "Yes, go that direction." (laughs) I thought, "Okay, this is it. I'm going to do this this direction." But I didn't know either. This was not my field, but uh, I think I think we've made some significant- There are
1: more advice. connections, there are more connections than we can even wrap our heads around. Right. Hopefully, we'll talk about it. Go ahead,
0: Yeah, it, it, now we're going to get into where your career began. So, how exactly did you come to meet and partner with Dr. Stephen Covey? And I know you've told me the story, but looking back, like Steve Jobs' incredible commencement address at Stanford, What dots were connected?
1: Well, the dot connecting is just profound as heck. But he also said you got to trust your gut, which gets back to your inspired action. You know, your your gut told you to come talk to me or call me or whatever. So there's a lot of communication that happens. The other talk uh, or podcast that you did that was really profound was Dr. John Leaf which I just kind of randomly chose one way back there. I think it's like 143 or something talking about the electrical communication in our cells. And I mean, wow, there's really a lot of interesting. What I've come to is that, that uh, one of the challenges we had, and we had many uh, in the eighties, but you know, the the corporate world, which was predominantly the, the uh, you know, you got to, Fun things right no margin no mission as Dr. Covey used to say and so corporate work was where we could get funding education didn't have the funding so we came to education later but but we were in the corporate world and the corporate world looked at a lot of this soft stuff as woo-woo right And so now, here we are, 30 years later, neuroscience is coming in and proving all the connections. So I was lucky enough to have moved deliberately. I followed a prompting and went to San Diego. uh, And there I I met Ken Blanchard and Tony Robbins. Uh, Dennis Waitley lived there. Brian Tracy lived in Solana Beach. I mean, it was just amazing. Shockey Gawain, DC Cordova, who did who did Money in You. Well, at any rate, when Cubby decided to do his book, he had been teaching this in universities for years and years and years. And he had wait lists of a thousand, his his student classroom was a ballroom that held a thousand students. And there was still wait lists to get into his class. So he was on to something but he decided to publish it. And so he went to Ken Blanchard and Tom Peters, who had the best-selling books of the 80s, One Minute Manager and In Search of Excellence, and asked him, if you had it to do over again, what would you do? And both of them said, get your own guy. Don't count on your publisher to do anything for you. Get your own guy. So Ken, through Mutual friends and things suggested that Stephen meet with me, and so we went to dinner, and we talked and and uh, we resonated a lot with each other. And uh, Annie was with us. Anyway, long story short, he wanted me to come work for him in Utah, and I'm a Colorado boy. I've done my quota of snow. <laughs> I moved to San Diego to get away from Utah. Right. And so anyway, I said, no, nah, I, am not, you know, so I told him, no, talk about not following your gut. I felt uncomfortable pushing that away, that opportunity away. Well, my sweet wife, Annie, who's a lot more in tune, she's a full on empath. She calls Stephen and says, listen, I know Greg doesn't want to go to work for you. However, I want to know if I can learn the seven habits and teach it here in the community in San Diego. So he invited her to Sundance, which was our Train the Trainer program in Sundance, Utah, Robert Redford's uh, ski resort. And so she's in a class. She's a stay-at-home mom, and she's in this class with 40 or so uh, corporate, professional human resource tra- executives and trainers. Wow. And she becomes a star of the class. She and Stephen hit it off. Stephen took her aside, and said. I predict your husband will come to work for me. So she comes to San Diego, reports back to me. And the next time Stephen came to San Diego for a speech, I went and listened to him. And I went up after the speech and I said, you know, what part of no do you not understand? I, you know, I, I don't want to move back to, to Utah. And I'll tell you, I, Andrea, I got, I wish I had a recording. I got a five minute dissertation on the distinction between money and meaning and making a difference and carrying my own weather with me because one of my excuses was I didn't want to go back to the snow and he says you got to carry your own weather with you you're bigger than your weather oh my anyway, gosh. so oh. and, and long story short we came up with a third alternative to where I stayed in San Diego represented the Cubby Leadership Center uh, in Southern California and then Flew uh, every month to Sundance to help with the uh, leadership courses, et cetera. And so, anyway, one thing led to another. But Let me tell you one other magical neuroscience thing about Annie. And I don't know how the neuroscience folks have come to explain this kind of stuff. One of the people I mentioned that we met with Shaki Gawain. Shaki wrote a book called Creative Visualization. Shaki's gone. I, uh, she died a few years ago. But... Her book is just amazing. Well, Annie, we were, I was an uh, independent businessman and I kind of like to skip the IRS payment once in a while. So we're a, a little dealt with the IRS and it was just driving Annie crazy. And like I mentioned, she's a stay-at-home mom. She's thinking, what can I do to help solve this issue? So she decides to go on Dick Clark's $10,000 pyramid game show up in LA. And so she imagined she wrote out the complete, you know, visualization basically of exactly what was going to happen. She said she was going to win $40,000. She was going to win a trip to, to uh, Europe. She was going to win a car. She was going to anyway, just right down the line. And she would, Literally before she went to bed and before she got up, she would do that visualization. Wow. And I can remember her having me read it to her occasionally. She goes on the thing, long story short, she wins five days in a row. She wins forty-four thousand dollars, a trip to Australia, not Europe, and a small Toyota truck, not a car. Wow. But it was and it just I mean, talk about a magnificent manifestation of those principles. So that's kind of informed our life. I mean, i I married up obviously. So I I owe my relationship with Stephen to uh, Annie. We used to listen to his, before I met him, we used to listen to his, he had a three set, three tape cassette tape uh, on the seven habits that we used to listen to when we drove from San Diego to Phoenix to visit, visit my parents. And so I was familiar somewhat with his teachings.
0: Well, I've got to ask because I I know how influential Annie was just standing in your home. I could I could feel that she had the understanding of all of this, even as I was kind of questioning the direction I was going. But uh, so I found an interview you did in 2014. And, you know, trust me to find a Toronto <laughs> radio station that interviewed you. I thought that was. Like we both thought it was funny and they and you talked about where this journey began with Dr. Covey, but I, I was thinking like what qualified you to work in publishing and why did <laughs> Covey say, I want that guy? What was it? What had you done
1: before? I was totally unqualified. I, I don't know <laughs> what it was thinking. But as I met him and got to know him and explained to him that I had uh, read every Book and taken every seminar possible. I had walked on fire with Tony Robbins. I had, you know, I had done a lot. And there's a whole conversation for neuroscience the firewalk. Uh, oh, yeah. Experience. That. Again, I don't want to digress into a whole <laughs> lot of woo woo stuff, but I'm telling yeah. you, there is a really incredible tie in. Uh, and we didn't even think about neuroscience when we wrote the seven habits of highly Effective people, but habits in and of themselves are a change your brain game. And so uh, there's a new book called Tiny Habits by uh, B.J. Fogg from Stanford. Everybody should read that. That is brilliant. It's the best thing on habits ever. But anyway, so it, it all kind of ties together. So I, I had explained to Stephen and the conversations I had had, uh, and he knew that I had been to Blanchard's programs, etc. cetera. And so i guess he just got a a sense but what he didn't know at that time was that when i i I went to college predominantly to keep my student deferment in in activity because in 1969 uh, it was either that or my number was low enough i was off to vietnam so i kept my grades up went to college otherwise i may not have gone which now i know the big debate is how valuable is it and it is valuable and i think everybody should get as much education as they possibly can but out of college i was i got a job for a gentleman by the name of w clement stone who co-authored success through a positive mental attitude with napoleon hill who wrote think and grow rich Well, I was a business minor. I I had a journalism major, and and that was another connection. I knew the media, at least at an academic level. And uh, so I had uh, gone to work for W. Clement Stone out of college, and he made everybody. It was an insurance company, and I wasn't in the sales department, but he made everybody go to a two-week sales course. And that's where I got introduced to self-help books. Think and grow rich, and how to win friends and influence people, and psycho cybernetics, and I Dare to Win. I just all of them, you know, because in college, I, in the academic sense, I always thought that was all just silly stuff. Wow. But then I uh, had that experience, direct experience, and specifically Mastermind Alliances, which is another little bit of a woo woo concept that I think neuroscience is finding it ties individualization where you literally create your own board of directors because you know I know Bob Proctor's gone and shocky has gone and Stephen Covey's uh, gone but they're not gone Right? they're still they still exist and so you can in your imagination have them on your board of directors so anyway I had done a lot of that and I think I had shared enough of that with Stephen plus I was passionate I was what I would call a growth junkie We'll get into growth chunkies in a minute. Yeah,
0: it was so much as you're talking, Greg, that that I'm pulling in like I didn't know that you knew Shadky Gawain, her her book, um, it was on developing intuition. That she took into the workplace, like yeah. intuition. Everyone's saying, "Oh, that's all woo woo." Yeah, but it's all. Her, that, yeah, her book was directly for using intuition in the workplace. And there was times when I worked with Pearson. You know, when when I first you know met you that's back right. in the day, I was at I Pearson. That. And I was Person trying education. to. Yeah, I was trying to visualize. Do they still it. exist. You know they they merged. They we have a different name yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, they did, and all my friends are gone from there. But uh, they're they've moved on to a different division there. But it was a great place to work, and uh, I still love the corporate world as much as you know. I get to see this side of it, but the corporate world—it's not all bad. There is so much I learned from people. Well, it's,
1: listen. You know, the, the, you know, our role as educators is to help people grow and learn, and organizations it's not just organizations it's family it's education it's government yeah there's a lot of tie-ins.
0: yeah definitely so i I thought it was interesting when you mentioned shatky because her (laughs) that that intuition book i would use when i was trying to visualize these big large sales with districts and my manager would say you know what are you doing for this big sale i'm like you don't want to know what i'm doing but i've got this book here and you know, trying to bring in this stuff to the corporate world, I was always the crazy one, but you know, now, now it's come into our schools, like tapping, they're using tapping yeah. you know, when you tap for reducing yeah, stress, know. like right. all I this know. stuff.
1: You know? Yeah, absolutely, and, and it all ties in. Another, you know, I'll try to make this one really short, but Stephen Covey, when I finally did go to work for him, the first thing they had me do, they sent me to a executive retreat uh in lake of the ozarks for a gas company feral gas i think it was and there were five or six presenters Stephen, ron mcmillan and and roger merrill and some of our other and blaine lee and we're all staying in this condominium together and uh so i was a little nervous because they're very corporate and they've got to be careful with corporations because you can't get too woo-woo and you can't teach values. And there's a lot of, you know, guidelines in those corporations, right? Well, anyway, so I was a little afraid that, that I was a little too woo-woo for these boys. And uh, Stephen, I, I hear this. I'm sitting in the living room in the dark meditating, and I hear somebody leading someone over the telephone in a visualization exercise. Wow. And I go in the kitchen, and here's Stephen Covey laying on the floor on the phone with Sean Covey who wrote Seven Habits for Highly Effective Teams, teams who was then the quarterback of Brigham Young University, who was about to play Air Force the next day. And Stephen was visualizing with him throwing a long pass. The next day he threw the longest pass in BYU history. Oh my longest God. completion against the Air Force. So this it's it's interesting the it science, is. and I'm sure I, I'd love to learn and understand. I, I don't care that I learn all the science behind it. I just love that there is science and that it's, yeah. it's not just magic.
0: Yeah, because I got beat up, Greg, when I tried to take into <laughs> the schools. It was, it I'll was bet you did. <laughs> but I would never have known. I would never would have gotten this route if this one educator didn't say, "Well, you go this route, and I'll listen to you." So yeah, that's kind that's of true. Where, where it went.
1: Well, but, you're on the you're on the leading edge. I mean, honestly, I, I really am really feeling good, and you're gonna be it be interesting in your reaction to some of the connections I made as I thought about this over the weekend.
0: Yeah, it, it, we could just I could keep going with so many different tangents, and my next question is kind of a part a two-part question. So it's written everywhere how mm-hmm. you took Seven Habits to incredible heights, and it was published globally in 40 languages. Can you explain what you did? And then the second part is the fact that it was the best selling foreign business book in history in Japan. So how did that happen
1: too yeah. far? Well, yeah, there's a there's a whole lot to be said. And I know this isn't a marketing and, and publicity uh, meeting. But there are a lot of interesting connections because what, Stephen, at that point, Again, he was following the money, so to speak. That's why their business was built around corporate, and that's how he was able to leave the university because he had so many corporate clients. And so that was the uh, genesis of our business was, was corporate work. Well, in corporations and in schools, there's an interesting phenomenon. The students, the recipients of the lectures, etc., are – Mandated to be there. You got a company-wide meeting. Everybody's got to come listen to Covey. Or in school, you've got XYZ class at 7.45 in the morning from Professor so-and-so. And so and you got to go to class. Well, interestingly, in the world that that Tony Robbins and some of my other friends, and I also uh, attended uh, Werner Earhart's stuff in the 70s, like all the other baby boomers did. and uh, There's a magic that happens in that setting. And and I thought about it all weekend. What made it different? Well, here's what made it different. And this is one of the secret sauces of our success was that when you have a public event, a public seminar, or an open enrollment, I guess you can do it online now and all that, people self-select to come in. Well, who do you think self-selects? to come in to listen to Shaki Gawain or to Stephen Covey or to Bob Proctor. These are my growth junkies. These are people that have a predisposition to want to learn more. They're curious. They have a certain mindset. And so they are your quote unquote fans. And what what, uh, the Covey Leadership Center, which was, we were less than a million dollar company at the time I joined. But anyway, they had focused on corporate, and so all of these people were forced to be there. So when the book came out, it became a mechanism that I was able to exploit by getting it in the hands of everybody, doing a lot of open enrollment programs so people could uh, attend and hear Stephen, but they would self-select and they would tell their friends. So we were able to create a momentum outside of corporate America, and that really helped a lot and then the other thing is we were just relentless I didn't
0: even though I had a journalism
1: degree I yeah you know, there is no science to journalism and now we got new media old media's dead I mean it's just all but it's all about attention how do you get attention and I looked at every article I could find that was written about any subject remotely close to what we were up to and I would contact that writer and say hey you gotta re- look at this book. And that's what I did. I, I didn't do anything magical. We, we also did the traditional media things, got Stephen on television. And Stephen was very charismatic. The other secret sauce is he wrote one of the best books of all time. That helps a lot. One of my secret goals when I first went to work for him was to get it to outsell Think and Grow Rich. So wow. Seven Habits now it has over 40 million copies in print. So I suspect it's ahead of uh, Think and Grow Rich and How to Win Friends and Influence People, which are interesting because they were written in the 30s. And I know Bob Proctor followed Wallace Waddles, and then we all know As a Man Think It. So this stuff is not new. So anyway, back to the success of Seven Habits in Japan. So we were very successful and we, we got it by word of mouth. We, we uh, sent uh, invitations. We got Stephen speaking at conferences. I tried to look in the marketplace and see what was hot. Well, in the early nineties, one of the hot things was the uh, Edwards Deming and the quality movement. So I got Stephen a keynote address at the ASQC, the Association American Society of Quality Consultants or something like that. And so, which was outside of our normal thing, but they resonated with the content. And so we just did a lot of things like that. So, okay, now let's do Japan. Japan. We, uh, the American publishers Simon and Schuster, sold the rights to Kodansha, the largest publisher in Japan. They did a crappy. I guess I got to be careful; I'll get canceled. But, but uh, they did a crappy uh, translation. We had a business partner, James Skinner, and his brother that retranslated the Seven Habits, and we self-published it in Japan. And so, I went to Japan. Uh, thanks to the genius of Steven, he wanted me to go listen. He says, don't don't tell the Japanese people to do what we did here, because how's that going to work? So I spent a month in Japan uh, with translators. <laughs> I don't speak Japanese. Translators interviewing journalists, booksellers, uh, book distributors, corporate people, executives. The uh, one really fun story... Uh, James Skinner spoke Japanese as good or better than a Japanese person. So he would contact people on the phone and make appointments to go see them, right? So he made this appointment to bring this American guy to one of their bigger employers in Tokyo. And uh, we walk in, and literally they're into kind of big stuff, right? So we're, we're shown into a room and You open up to another room, and then way down at the end, there's this this Japanese executive. And as we walked into the room, I could tell he was doing this. He was trying to look over our shoulder to see where the Japanese guy that he talked on the phone to was. He did not know that James was an American. He couldn't tell his Japanese was that good. So that was kind of fun. But anyway, so I just listened. I did have it five. I listened because it, it is different in Japan. They don't do public seminars. That was another se- secret sauce, at oh. least in the 80s. I'm sure they do now. But back then it was, they're very conservative. They don't ask questions. If you do a lecture in uh, Japan, and I've done several, uh, and open up for questions, <laughs> you're, you're done. are no I'm, questions? Just, they, there's no questions. Oh, wow. <laughs> Now, there are now, and James has done a great job. We've done really well. But the uh, the other thing we discovered was that our drive time radio media and all that to get attention in Japan didn't work because they rode the subway. So we literally, we didn't do any advertising for the seven habits books in the United States. Uh, that was not part of our formula. And uh, in Japan, that's where we spent all of our attention was – subway advertising in tokyo because everybody rode the subway so subway advertising and introducing them to public seminars and that magic just that happens in a group setting that's that's how it happened
0: oh this is so interesting greg and it kind of makes me remember my next question here makes me remember when i came to see you and i had you know this book that i wanted to take into the schools and You, you asked me, you said, well, what are the concepts that you're trying to get? And I think you were trying to get me to simplify it. So, you know, when, when you looked at the seven habits, how did you get Dr. Covey to simplify his habits and make them easier for people to understand? Like you were trying to do with me and you called him your recovering academic. Why was that?
1: Well, yeah, he was a professor. And he had really good stuff and he'd been teaching and, you know, and he was really good. I didn't have anything to add. He was a genius. He did the sequential learning process and the seven habits and the six conditions of this. And, you know, so he was really into codifying if you will, the content, but he had a tendency to make it a little bit too complex and I can't take full credit. The other, my, partner in crime was Sandra Covey, his wife. She was constantly telling, oh Stephen, just tell him. Just tell him what, you know, just, just get to the point. And then Bob Asahina, our original editor at Simon and Schuster, did a good job because Stephen, because of the sequential learning process, <clears throat> before he got to the habits, he would teach you all the founding principles. So there was a paradigms and there's just a lot of stuff before we yeah. get to have one. Bob Asahina, he says, well my job as the editor, is to represent the reader. And they're buying a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. They don't want to get to have one in the middle of the book. Wow, <laughs> so yeah. he helped it's us streamline it a lot. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it, Stephen, um, again, he because he, he's a Harvard – anyway, there's just in – the, in the beginning of writing the first drafts of The Seven Habits, we were kind of writing to the uh, – the Harvard professors, I think, and I mean, once Stephen, but he got criticized for it, my advice and others and Sanders advice, because we simplified it to the point where uh, all the professors in the 80s and 90s called it pop psychology. You know, it's like, oh, that's not a serious academic work. But uh, obviously, history speaks for itself. One other interesting thing about Simon and Schuster, about Stephen, that gives you an insight into his genius we were in a meeting one of the original meetings in simon schuster in new york at the big round marble table with their entire executive team and Stephen, is they we were talking about the first print run of the book which is uh, another key to success doesn't you any good to do a lot of media and get a lot of attention if people go to the store and they're out of stock and and the publishers are very conservative because they get burned a lot right they don't know which ones are going to sell even though they tell you they do uh, anyway, so Stephen tells this executive team that he was going to sell 10 million books in the decade of the 90s. Okay. Andrea, you could have heard a pin drop. Wow. I, could, I, I was on the other side of the table and I could see the president of Simon & Schuster and the marketing people Their eye do the eye roll. Like, oh, who's going to tell this country bumpkin from Utah Wow. How publishing works, right? right? But doggone, he sold 12 million copies in in the nineties. So, yep. uh, yeah. Anyway,
0: yeah, he made it. You all made it simple, and I love the framework. I think that's a whole other area. You even said something to me that stuck uh, because I was trying to go to the teen market with this with these concepts, which is a whole other thing. It's it's not an easy thing to do. But you said remember that commercial from the 80s with that kid eating the cereal does Mikey like it? Does Mikey
1: like it? Yeah. Yeah,
0: and and it, that was the whole point. You're like if you can get the kids to like it, then then you'll get the traction because you can't go in and try and teach these concepts the kids are going to roll their eyes like which is what happens to my kids until they hear their friend saying, you oh, you know, like, look what, <laughs> look what we're doing. We're, we're buying these crystals and hanging them in a room for good energy. I'm like, come on, I've been doing that since before you were born. Like, yeah. so, you know, just the whole idea of making it simple, I think is, is important.
1: At the beginning of your question, you asked about the restraining forces of getting into education um, and, there were a lot of restraining forces. One of the things that comes to mind is the Christian booksellers in the beginning would not distribute our book because it was written by a Mormon. And so I went to another San Diego boy, another friend, John Maxwell, who uh, everybody knows. And John was a preacher in San Diego before he wrote all these uh, books. Well, he was the president of the Christian Businessmen's Association. And so I sent him seven habits, and I said, what do you think's the problem? And he goes, ignorance. <laughs> they just didn't know. You know, mm-hmm. They just made this leap that, oh, that must be bad. Well, obviously, he helped me get it in the Christian sellers, and, and uh, it's been everywhere. It's in every country. It's in 40 languages. So we only, once somebody understands and, and has a firsthand experience, the other, the other challenge, and back to the to the schools, Muriel, Muriel Summers is the one that got us into the K-12. She went to see Stephen speak in Washington, and uh, <clears throat> she was having trouble with her magnet school in North Carolina funding and whatnot, and she had to come up with a curriculum that was going to uh, save the school, basically, so she goes to listen to Stephen, and she's in this corporate setting. And after Stephen spoke, she walked up to the front of the room and she goes, Stephen, do you think that we could teach this in K through 12? Do you think we could teach it to kids? And he goes, I don't see why not. He says, go do it. And tell me what you find out. Oh, and there you go. went and did it and saved yeah. the school and all that. And Leader in Me is a whole book about this whole thing. But the funnest thing in my life, Andrea, for the educators, I went to—I don't know—I guess a VIP day is what they called it okay. in North Carolina at Muriel's School. Uh, this was a few years after it had been being taught, <clears throat> and I arrive at the school and I am greeted by, you know, a five-year-old yeah. who escorts me into the school. The hall is lined with kids greeting us. And then the MC of the meeting that recites the school's mission statement is seven years old. And they talked about conflict resolution with habit four and five on the playground. And I was stunned. It really, kids, because again, we're spiritual beings, having a human experience, we have the capabilities. Bob Proctor used to always talk about uh, the source of all this comes from god we're children of god and so there's a lot more to this than any of us want to give credit And we don't have to get religious about it but neuroscience is proving that all this stuff kind of ties together
0: we could actually spend a good week on my next question because you've got some incredible life experience that you're touching on with high levels of success and achievement reached. but i want to know about those times that were difficult And our audience consists of educators and those in the corporate workplace around the world who could benefit from your story that you told me where everything went wrong. And I think it was in Portland when Dr. Covey insisted that the show must go on. So even before we started, never before has my email stopped working, but can you tell me or tell us all the story of presenting in front of others when you want everything to be perfect and maybe even thinking about distance learning from Microsoft and going into Zoom. Like what, what can you share about those stories?
1: The uh, Portland story. Yeah, the, you and I did have trouble getting your email to work this morning for the Zoom <laughs> connection. So there's always a little bit of a, a rush, but I really enjoyed the, the energy today with you. Um, we were in Portland. We One of our other strategies, I mentioned the strategy of having open enrollment programs Well, we had people representing us in different parts of the country. And Chris Soltysiak represented us in Portland, Oregon, with all the business people in Oregon and had this big event with 500 people at the Marriott and they'd all paid to fee to come. And, and lo and behold, as we get there a half an hour before the, the program's supposed to start, the, there's a blackout, complete, total blackout. And it's not coming back on. And so Chris is, just panic-stricken because these are all of her clients and all that, right? right. Oh, we gotta we got to cancel, we gotta get all their money back and we gotta, Stephen's gonna to have to come back. I says, he won't be able to get him back till next year. And so Stephen comes marching down the hall. I said, we've had a power outage um, and so there will be no lights. And he goes, let's go. Show must go on. And wow. he went in and the, the manager found a flashlight emergency flashlight that they could at least illuminate Stephen kind of but basically nobody could take notes Andrea they couldn't see a thing they couldn't see their hand in front of their face and we got more positive responses very few people attend a program you've done a lot and you don't get as many comments as you'd like on your your podcast most people are what the the digital natives what my gen z grandkids call lurkers They're lurkers. They just observe. They don't participate, right? So we very rarely got we got more letters talking about how that was the most profound experience of their life because it it shattered all their beliefs that in order to learn you got to be able to take notes, you got to be able to see the slides, you got to all this stuff. Yet if they just listen, it it really did make a big big difference. We also in the early 90s partnered with PBS and did a sat one of the first international satellite broadcasts of a seminar with Stephen and we had the same experience um not not the power outage but the fact that the technology this is so far before zoom this was the they, we had to bring in the satellite trucks right like from the ES, they weren't ESPN at that time but the, the media satellite truck had to park outside the hotel and they had to run the cords into these places and and I think it was we were in South Korea and and Singapore. I, I can't remember. I, I, I'm sure somebody could look that up. But any anyway, rate. So we broadcast Stephen. Four hours, Andrea, of four the same talk that he was given in the United States. So we had a live audience in uh, I think it might have been Kingsbury Hall, at the University of Utah. And then we had these satellite uh, places where it was broadcast. Again, we got the same overwhelming response from the people that only saw him on the satellite. That was the first glimpse that we had that, that boy, you don't necessarily have to be in the same room, although I think there's a neuro, neurological, neurobiological advantage to that being present in the room that we lose with Zoom. Mark Zuckerberg was uh, talking yesterday about how virtual reality will change dramatically when they can figure out the eye contact. Mm, yep. Because that's, even though I can see you and all that, we, we just don't have the mm-hmm. that same. And boy, yep. eye contact that was one of Stephen Covey's strengths and Bob Proctor's and Jack Canfield, all of them. Just, they're just so present right. and they give you that eye contact. But anyway, so there, yeah, there's going to be adversity all the time. And rather than be surprised by it, just roll with it.
0: Love it. Love it. I thought it was so funny when you mentioned that you, for 40 years, had a, an assistant and tech support. <laughs> and you're like, Do you have anything like that? And I'm thinking, No, it's oh. just me over here. I've got a soundboard <laughs> over here, and I am tech support. <laughs>
1: like, My son in law runs his entire business, international business, out of his iPhone. It is a new game.
0: Yeah, Richie Norton, he's a, he's, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's really, I mean, we used to have to print and send invoices and now you guys, I mean, he gets paid by Zoom or not by Zoom, by Zelle or something yeah. before he even does the consulting up front. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole deal, but yeah. good. That's, this is exciting. I'm thrilled. Our, our, uh, and, and we do really, we, we partner with Microsoft and Zoom. Uh, on a lot of different things, particularly through the pandemic. They were heroic. Uh, Eric Wan is a big fan. He said that uh, all these years, he's, when people ask him his favorite book, he says it's Speed of Trust. Uh, and then uh, now that we send him the new book, he says, now I have to say I have two favorite books, uh, Speed of Trust and uh, Trust and Inspire. Uh, but uh, the the whole technology and the concept that we can do this. My my church broadcasts a semi-annual conference every year for years by satellite. Uh, and it, you know, there's there's something about the visual communication that our neurobiology adjusts a little bit, like, you know, this uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. They're gonna get it figured out. It's it's gonna be uh, be interesting.
0: Well, it's really cool to get this chance to speak with you even like on video and then I get to edit it and put it out <laughs> on YouTube. And and there then people ma- will make comments all over the world and they'll say, you know, just how powerful that they could feel the connection. Like I can seriously feel the energy from Sedona because it's un- unmistakable from behind you there. That's I not a backdrop.
1: Imp- I am impressed by the way that you're in so many countries. You know, I love the, the guy from Brazil. That was a yeah. really fun... Uh, experience and and we do we do business all over the world and that's another interesting thing and credit to dr covey he made a point when he wrote seven habits to stick to universal truths to universal principles and nothing that could expire or be challenged they're just the four unique human endowments right Right. Uh, conscious free will uh, imagination and choice or free will Uh, i skipped one Uh, self-awareness Anyway, it's all tied together. And we have these neurobiological gifts from somewhere.
0: Right. (laughs) That we use. Yeah. Well, I've got to go to The Eighth Habit because it's the one that I've centered my life's work around over here, especially with this podcast. And you mentioned that The Eighth Habit almost didn't get published. Can you just remind us of what the eighth habit is and what happened? Why did it almost not get published?
1: Oh, the short story, it, uh, Stephen was writing a follow-on book. Publishers are always bugging you to write another book. Well, he had a book, uh, leadership is a choice, not a position. And it was an organizational book and culture. It was really good. But Carolyn Reedy at Simon & Schuster, the president of Simon Schuster at the time, you know, they're thinking they want to sell books. They're not, you know, they, they well, that's kind of you're going from a broad audience to a narrow audience. So she, I said, Well, what <clears throat> what if we call it the Eighth Tablet? And she goes, Now you're on to something. So I go to Stephen and I say, What do you think if there was an eighth tablet? Do you think oh, really? these, and he goes, Oh no, we're gonna do if they don't want to do this book, we'll do it with somebody else. And but then as he always does over the weekend, he went and thought about it and just all came out. And he said, you know, finding your voice and helping others find them that or find theirs. Yeah. That is the eighth habit. That is really,
0: he so just made it up over the weekend because, well, I
1: know he didn't, I, you know, I don't think he made it up. I think it tied into so many yeah. different elements. And as you read the book, you'll see that it's not just laminated on. It just breathes life into so much as it relates to, to everything we're doing.
0: Well, because when I when I met you and I after the seminars you kept in touch every time there was something teen related you'd send it over my way. And I thought that was intentional. I thought, this guy's got to know that I really want to write this teen book. <laughs> and, and then I thought, looking back and connecting the dots, mm. I thought, maybe he's helping me find my voice. And maybe you're doing me a habit. I don't know. <laughs> well,
1: hey, no, that's true. I mean, you can't learn all this stuff without, right. and this is what's so beautiful about the podcast. You can't learn all this stuff without creating and generating a desire to share it right. with others. Because it blesses lives.
0: Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, that, that just brings me back to my next question. When, um, well, even even before that, what's your favorite habit, Greg? And <laughs> what, 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 what do you find yourself working on the most? You talk about it all the time.
1: Yeah, my favorite habit is habit two, uh-huh. and uh, that's begin with the end in mind. You gotta. I'm I'm very. I'm more left brain. Annie's more right brain, and uh, so I, I got to have a target. Right. So I got to look at the horizon and say, here's our plan. The Japanese have 50 year plans, which is a little bit beyond what's well, beyond my lifespan. So I, I don't get that. That is a little weird about being this age and, and you no longer can have a 20, 30 year plan and with any credibility. But anyway, um, my habit that I work on the most is uh, habit five. And since I've retired, I mentioned I had the heart uh, challenge, and it caused me to <clears throat> have to be semi-retired. I'm pondering, listening to podcasts. I'm the consumer of podcasts and books, and I always have it. I've read, I figured out over a 1,000 uh, of the best business nonfiction and psychology books over my uh, career. So I'm very familiar with it. So when I uh, am exposed to something, I can really tell. One of the books that has helped me the most This uh, that I highly recommend is Michael Bungay-Stainer. He's the CEO and founder of Box of Crayons, again from Toronto, interesting enough. Uh, I think he's originally Australian and he he self-published a book called The Coaching Habit, which is brilliant. And then he followed it up with a book called The Advice Trap. The Advice Trap about being curious and about those of us that don't listen It is really a good book and it has dramatically helped me. I've been meditating and my brain is changing because I've meditated all my life, but you know, the five minute kind of just check it off your list approach. But boy, if you really do this and ponder about things deeply, and that's what Stephen was so good at. That's how he came up with the eighth habit. He just didn't, you know, he he pondered deeply and, afraid about it i know he did and he came up with it
0: well do you i know that you believe in dr dan siegel's mind Site. do you have you ever seen his wheel of awareness meditation oh
1: yeah
0: you go, like that yeah,
1: one no. that's a good very one. very good very good one and the whole mind side and the whole connection between the mind and the brain the brain being an orbital dr Amon, uh daniel amen uh, talks about psychiatrists being the only doctors that don't look at the organ that they're trying to treat. Right. And uh, so he does brain scans, and the fact that they're able to, to scan and validate, it's just validating a lot of the woo woo assumptions. It's pretty incredible. And the whole concept of mind sight, where your whole body, and this is why I like the cellular guy, Dr. Leaf, uh, the fact that there's electrical. Stuff happening that's communicating between our cells, and so that our whole neuro neurological system is our mind, not just not just the organ called the brain. So there's there's some really extraordinary stuff. Interestingly, my heart problem is uh, electrical. It's not plumbing, as they say. I don't have clogged arteries. You can't do stents. My doctor performed a heart surgery on me a couple years ago which is working and he basically scarred my heart so the electrical impulses didn't get hung up or something i don't know anyway so again electrical we are energy we are beings of light and energy well i I, I think
0: no it's interesting you picked dr leaf's one because it was pretty deep and intense and The one part I remembered from that was, you know, when you get this sick feeling when you don't feel well, you you eat something, like that's a signal from in your cell to you. You got to listen to these feelings. I thought, wow, (laughs) that's like, I didn't know. I I know that. But now he's showed us how it's a part of our body telling us something that we have to listen to. Yeah. Well,
1: that's that's the other magic of uh, my experience with the habit five learning to listen listen to myself plundering really really good yeah so
0: so if we can go back to around 2002 when you came in to consult with bob proctor and i forgot that mark victor hansen was there and when as you were talking i kind of now know why you'd be connected to mark victor with your connection with clement stone and he was always talking about clement stone and so now i kind of see why they probably brought you in together for those three percent club seminars and it was around the same time doug weed came in and i remember meeting you in the lobby of the ritz carlton
1: it was yeah called I that remember that.
0: yeah it's called something else mm-hmm. now um but you introduced me to stedman graham and he was he had just written a book for teens what do you remember about those days of working with the seminar industry leaders and what about other work you did with tony robbins and werner Erhard?
1: Well everybody thought that there was some magical secret sauce that I could help yep. them with yep right? I remember. because we were so successful well yep. there really isn't you know so they had this 3% club uh, concept and they were just bringing in a bunch of different speakers. Mm-hmm. They hired uh, uh, numerous speakers to speak on the stage and they, they were really ahead of their time they were trying to get a subscription service, what we call today a subscription service, to where you became a member of the 3% Club. And I said, well, that's all great. And all these wonderful speakers will attract a crowd. But if you really want to add value, you, Bob Proctor, and Mark need to tie it all together. And it needs to be more about you. They were trying to kind of throw it over the wall and not have to spend the effort themselves. And so they did, and that that helped a lot. And there were uh, a number of things to be learned. But yeah, I I did. I mentioned Warner Earhart before. Uh, I cut my teeth on the S training. I remember I was an assistant at a six-day uh, uh, S, which is now called the Forum. Uh, and one of the uh, exercises was a ropes course. And so, as an assistant. With no experience, my job was to tie the halter on these people that are going to repel off a cliff. Oh, yeah. And the, the mantra for the seminar was, you've got to be present. You've got to do everything you're doing as if lives were at stake. This takes us back to Steve Jobs when he said, you know, what if you lived every day as if you were your last, right? But in the seminar, you did it as if lives were at stake. Were wow. at stake. And then with Tony, um, I did the first few date with Destiny's in the living room of his uh, Del Mar Castle in Del Mar. I lived in Solana Beach and uh, walked on fire with him. One thing I will say, again, neuroscientifically, there's got to be a lot of things your experts could observe about this. I went to a, a program in Orange County. I'd say there were 350 people in the room. Tony walks on stage, asks them how many are here to walk on fire? Out of 300 and some people, there were less than 20 that raised their hand. By the end of the night, Andrea, in three hours time, meanwhile, you look out the window and you see him burn, you know, burning the logs down and all that, (laughs) getting ready. By the end of the night, there were only seven out of 320 that didn't walk on fire and they had medical conditions oh, wow. and that's why they didn't do it. So that's the power of persuasion, neuroplasticity, I don't, change their minds, I, paradigm shift. It's, it's really interesting stuff. So I didn't really have any secret stuff for Bob and Mark. I gave them a few ideas about what we had experienced. But what I do remember telling everybody what was our secret sauce was this whole distinction of a captive audience. People that self-select to participate in something are going to learn 10 times more and be much more inclined to share the information. See, that was the other secret sauce for seven habits. Stephen, as an educator, had a thing that he learned from Walter Gong, who was a guest lecturer at Harvard in the 50s when Covey was there. Stephen uh, had three-person teaching in The Seven Habits. If you've read it, you'll remember that. It says, if you want to learn something, take some notes and then go teach it to somebody else. And you got to think before you listen to a lecture, who am I going to teach this to? And you'll take n- different notes if you got, literally think you're going to go share it with your spouse or your son or your daughter or whatever. So it's really, uh, people will share things more if they've had a visceral kind of experience. And I think that's the key to a lot of the success of Seven Habits.
0: Well, I remember all the buzz of, of bringing you in. They thought that, that you were going to solve all their problems. And then yeah. I think I think you showed them that, that they had to actually uh, step in, lean in a little bit more, and share their secrets and their contacts. And that's what they started saying, we'll share our Rolodex with you back then <laughs> with Rolodex, you know, and, yeah, and give exactly you the contacts. And that's when they realized yeah. they had to participate that you had to be playing an active role in helping people lend the hand.
1: Well, there needs to be the threads. We talk about connecting all the dots. There's a whole lot of knowledge and a whole lot of nuance in all these different programs and books and whatever. And you've got to figure out ways to get those threads back to something that's meaningful to you. And that's the only way you're going to be able to remember it. And then I think that just like we didn't know this when we did Seven Habits, but I really believe the whole concept of forming a habit is a neurological pathway in the brain that's reinforced. So,
0: you know, just to kind of bring this into where you are now, we've talked a lot about your book with Stephen M. R. Covey, Smart Trust. And uh, what was it that led you to create a book on trust in the first place? What did you think was so important about this?
1: Well, our first book was Speed of Trust. And the experience you and I are having in this uh, webinar is the speed of trust. Because we had a trusting relationship that went back years, it was easier for me to say, because I've turned down, I've been asked to do podcasts and speeches, I've been turning them down for the last four years. But anyway, it's the speed of trust. So what we observed that led us to this speed of trust book was that, we've been blessed to do business in 40 countries or now 100 countries all over the world. And we were looking for behavior traits. The original uh, subtitle to the Seven Habits book uh, was Restoring the Character Ethic. Stephen's big point in Seven Habits was contrasting the character ethic and the personality ethic. And so in when we did all the business in these other countries, we were trying to ask what are the, what are the, What are the successful people doing? What's the common threads? We're back to threads and following the dots. We discovered that there were 13 behaviors common to high trust leaders all over the world, regardless of the country. So that's the gist of the book uh, uh, Speed of Trust is the 13 behaviors of high trust people. And again, behaviors, neuroplasticity and all that ties together. When you do the behaviors, it changes everything. When you change your paradigm, you change your behavior. So there's that. And then, and then, speed of trust. Or I mean, smart trust came because <clears throat> it was one of the 13 behaviors, but, but people, there's a paradox. You know, is it blind trust? We're going to get ripped off if we trust people. We're paranoid. Well, there's smart trust, which You've got distrust, where you distrust everybody, and, and you can't get anything done, or you got blind trust, where you're so gullible you get in trouble. Well, the third alternative, and that's that book predominantly is is smart trust, that you are smart about it. You do your homework, and you do it intelligently. And I won't go into any more teach about that.
0: Well, oh, so so then I just saw that it's coming out next month in Trust and Inspire.
1: Yeah, trust and inspire, inspire is the next level of thinking. And this is, here's a tie in fact that came to me in the uh, Speed of Trust. Stephen's dad was still alive, and he wrote the um, forward. And this is what he said about trust. He's talking about his son. His son was successful because he had character and competence. Stephen was trusted. He extended trust to others. The synergistic effect of being trusted and giving trust unleashed a level of performance we had never experienced before. And almost everyone associated with those events looked on the transformation as the supreme, most exhilarating and inspiring experience of their business careers. And that magic that I'm talking about in these group settings, in these seminars of people that have self-selected to come in happens again and again and again. I've been to programs of all types. It is just extraordinary. And there's neural science in there somewhere that I think is just extraordinary. And that's what the Trust and Inspire is about. It's a follow-on to where it's really about culture. 92% of companies still have some form of command and control. Even after, even way back 33 years ago in Seven Habits, we said, no, you know, you don't do command and control. You you do it the other way. Yeah, you know, you inspire people. Inspire, But but they still don't do it. Now, Stephen's come along and reinforced it. And really, it's an extension. You said you like the Eighth Habit. It's an extension of some of the principles of the Eighth Habit, where Stephen was trying to write an organizational Culture book, the power of culture. Stephen, what I just read was talking about the power of culture. We had been having some trouble. Stephen came in uh, and became the CEO, turned the whole thing around. And as Stephen was explaining, he did it because he was trusted, and he had everybody's best interests at heart. It created a familial kind of a culture where we would all die for the mission. I mean, we were really into it and. It was it was magical, and we've seen it in company after company after company. People ask us about trust. Let me give you the short seminar: two sentences. Think of a person that you trust. What's it like to be with that person? What are the words that come up? We do this in programs. I'll I'll cut to the chase. Well, what comes up with a person you trust? It is safety and and peace and camaraderie and all sorts of positive things. And if you think of a person that you don't trust, the Emotions and the energy that comes up is fear and other, you know, distrust. It's a whole different thing. So that contrast is really the the key to trust. Well, this trust and inspire book is a contrast between command and control, and trust and inspire, unleashing people's potential. Stephen Covey, when he left uh, Harvard, uh, his father was in the hotel business. Any of you guys in the Western United States? Uh, Uh, There's a place called Little America, Wyoming. That was Stephen's grandfather, who almost died in a snowstorm and promised he promised God he'd build a place of refuge if he could survive. And he did. And it's called Little America. It's the largest truck stop. And then there was a whole chain of hotels. Well, anyway, so Stephen's uh, father was in the hotel business. So he came back from Harvard and says, I want to unleash human potential. And he changed From the hotel business to this because that was his intent was to unleash human potential and that's what this trust and inspire book is magical as a matter of fact bain and company which is a boston consulting group um that is very credible (laughs) they did a study and they found that we are we're all talking about empowerment and they did a study and found that inspired people, people that describe themselves as being inspired are 52% more productive than those that are engaged. And they're 125% more productive than those that report as being satisfied with their employment. So this is really a big idea. It's its an extraordinary book. There's an educator that... Uh, since you've got educators on here. Kathy Quiroz-Moore said, trust and inspire is a future of education. And Tony Robbins said it's the uh, future of leadership. So that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But we've got all sorts of people that, Amy Edmondson is a Harvard Business School professor and the number one thinker in the world, says it's a beautifully written page turner. The CEO of Microsoft, is endure- this is a big deal. This is another seven habits, I believe. And that's blasphemy to say that inside of Franklin Covey. But it, it is a big idea. And Stephen did an extraordinary, extraordinary job.
0: Well, it was interesting for me just to go back and and refresh. Listening to your Toronto interview you did, and then i actually went back and just looked at smart trust that you did and and just thinking about like when you said one of the most important and powerful lessons you learned about trust was that when you extend trust to others you more than likely get it back it's like yeah, that's the
1: reciprocity right it is reciprocity which is a neuroscientific principle i mean it really is reciprocity is a big big deal and and that whole trust and inspire concept the building of a culture is what trust and inspire will do and everybody talks about it but nobody really realizes the power of a culture that's why i wanted to read stephen r covey's description of the culture we had at covey leadership center and everybody can think about that just like i had you think of a high and a low trust person everybody can think about a time in their career when everything just went and there, there was teamwork and synergy and it was the best job I ever had, right. Yep, you know, I I might have been at the Pike, Pike, Pike's peak or Pike's uh, fish market in yep. Seattle. You know, that was, they were having a lot of fun. Kenny Blanchard did a movie about that.
0: Yep. Definitely, and, and that was what my life was like at Pearson when I first got there, and then and then it changed when yeah. like, different things, different partnerships happen, and then it changes, and you're like, how well, do you get
1: it back? That's one of the magical things about uh, trust and inspire, Andrea. Everybody's been acquired or had all these shifts and all that, and you, everybody wants to – Stephen Covey said the very – minute you think the problem's out there, that very thought's the problem. So everybody wants to blame the company, blame the culture, blame the environment, all this stuff. We can all start where we are. It's an inside out approach. And if you, the first thing of a trust and inspire leader is to model the principles. So you, you can be a leader in your family, you can be a leader in your school, you can just be that person and you can change from the inside out in any organization. We've seen it over and over and over again. It's been proved, neuroscience is real. And so our education system, this whole social emotional learning, there's a charge, that energy, there's a charge to learning. That's why I think that self-selected groups in a program or self-selected people that volunteer to work for an organization. Volunteer groups have a lot different dynamics than a lot of companies. But inside companies, you can have volunteers to volunteer for a project. Mm -hmm. Just put it up in the the company and let people from different departments contribute to a project once in a while. So there's ways to create it. And Stephen's done a magical job uh, of conveying that in this trust and inspire. You're gonna really love it.
0: No, I was gonna say that what's interesting is leading us back to that inspired action. That when yeah. you allow people this, that they get the choice that they're going to wake up and be excited to do what they're going to be doing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Assuming good intent and others changes everything.
0: If, if I was to say, you know, uh, bringing this into a close, what would be some final thoughts for you to bring this all together with all your experience over the years? Working and partnered with Stephen Covey, and all of you learned from him. And I know he walks his talk, right? Like it's it's rare, few and far between. Do you see this in the seminar industry?
1: Well, and the ones that do are the ones that have the influence. I don't know if any of your people have seen the Netflix "I Am Not Your Guru." That uh, that's Tony Robbins, and it, it's a glimpse inside of an event that many, I know Tony's got a lot of people, we've done a lot of seminars. There's still probably a high percentage of the population that have never been to any of these kind of seminars, but they can glimpse it in that Netflix thing and it's it's very real. The, uh, the one thing I would leave everybody with is read. Steven challenged me to read a book a week and that's why I know I've read over a thousand uh, books and it really is, and ponder I, what I'm learning now that I've got a little more time, that not just reading, but pondering, contemplating, trying to connect those dots, those threads back to, how is this meaningful to me? And uh, it really does make a difference. There's a thing I wanted to say about Stephen um, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, had uh, this to say about Stephen because I mentioned Bob and Stephen still exist you know we're, we're not dead the, uh, he said no person lasts forever but books and ideas can endure Stephen R. Covey's life is done but his work is not it continues right here in this book as alive today as when it was first written and that's true of seminars and programs and podcasts you mentioned you wanted to leave a legacy you're doing it
0: Thank you. Greg, I want to thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your secrets that only you would know from working with some of these leaders in in this industry. I'm so grateful we met all those years ago and that you took an interest in helping me along the way to find my voice and then help others find theirs. And when you came to me with some ideas, I thought I've got to take action. Like Doug said, you know, get up and do (laughs) something. I I wrote down that, I circled it. And then when I contacted you to write a testimonial for the back of the book for Secret for Teens Revealed, I was listening to all those uh, inspired action signals that my body was telling me, do something. So I'm so grateful for, you know, it was such a quantum leap for I don't know if you would remember where I was back in the day before you met me as a school teacher in Toronto,
1: in Toronto, right. It's, It's
0: a huge leap from where I am today the life that that I was taught how to carve out and I believed in all these principles. So I just want to thank you so much for your help, um, the ideas and support that you gave me along the way. And I'm looking forward to Trust and Inspire coming out and continuing to learn more from you as we move forward. Thanks well, so you much.
1: Are, you are one of these growth junkies, uh, Andrea, that, <laughs> yep. that has uh, optimized your human potential. Uh-huh. And it really is a big idea. One, you ask about legacy. The other legacy, even if you, you know, everybody says write a book, write a journal. I'm horrible at journaling. Um, but if, if people will just start to compile their list of the 20 or so books that changed their life and think about and ponder it and write it down and just leave that book list with your commentary to your progenitors, you can pass along the baton in a meaningful, meaningful way.
0: That's good. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for this podcast, Greg.
1: Thank you. Good to talk to you. You Thanks, everybody.
0: Some final thoughts before we close out this episode that's far from over. My mind was blown while editing this episode as Greg mentioned so many book titles that I do plan on creating a map of this episode in the future with his suggested book titles to guide us along the way. I do highly suggest grabbing this next book, Trust and Inspire, and taking on Dr. Covey's challenge of reading a book a week like Greg has done over his career. His final challenge of writing out the top 20 books that have changed your life with your commentary is something that I'll definitely do in the future. And I hope that this episode has inspired you to take some sort of inspired action in your life. I'll see you next episode.